This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Lung Science Podcast. My name is Alexandra Cass, and I'm a pediatric pulmonary fellow at Boston Children's Hospital. With me today to discuss the vaping epidemic affecting adolescents in the United States are Dr. Alicia Casey, an attending pediatric pulmonologist at Boston Children's Hospital, and Dr. Lester Hartman, the senior partner at Westwood Mansfield Pediatrics and member of the Pediatrics Physician Organization at Boston Children's Hospital with a master's in public health and social behavior from the Harvard School of Public Health. Alicia, we've learned so much this year about the pulmonary complications of vaping and have had the chance to take care of many patients with a variety of pulmonary and extrapulmonary manifestations of e-cigarette use. With the support of the division in the hospital, we have been able to develop a vaping program at Boston Children's Hospital and to partner with an interdisciplinary group, including our addiction medicine specialists, toxicologists, pathologists, government relations, marketing, and the Department of Public Health to help fight the vaping epidemic in adolescents and young adults. This past year, you were selected as a member of the Massachusetts Special Legislative Commission on Vapes, Jewels, and Other E-Cigarettes and provided testimony on the pulmonary complications of vaping products to the Massachusetts Health Commission, Massachusetts Governor Baker, and the Attorney General Healy. We're so fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Lester Hartman, who's been instrumental in advocating for stricter laws and enforcement around the use of e-cigarettes in adolescents in Massachusetts and integrally involved in the Tobacco 21 campaign, as well as the Massachusetts Tobacco and Vape Flavor Ban. Alicia, when it really hit me how serious this was, was when we admitted our mutual patient, who I'll call Joe, to the hospital last December. So to give a brief background, Joe's a 16-year-old boy with a very remote history of asthma, but no respiratory symptoms in over 10 years. He presented with several months of chest tightness and cough for which he had already received antibiotics with minimal improvement and oral steroids with improvement, but not resolution of symptoms. On presentation to the emergency room, his exam was quite significant and remarkable and notable for increased work of breathing, decreased aeration and diffuse biphasic wheeze. In the ER, he received bronchodilators and had some improvement and had a chest x-ray, which was unrevealing. When I first got the page from the ER about Joe, There was something that felt different and concerning. It was atypical that he had been totally symptom-free for such a long time and now was presenting with severe chronic uncontrolled symptoms. I was concerned about Avali and in further discussing with Joe, he revealed he vaped nicotine products prior to his presenting symptoms. Alicia, I wanted to get your thoughts on Joe's initial presentation. How would you go about treatment and workup for a patient with a distant history of asthma who's coming in with an asthma-like presentation but isn't a slam dunk asthma diagnosis in the context of a vaping history. For the treatment, given that the patient has a bronchodilator response, I would continue with that therapy and give steroids and other acute asthma exacerbation treatment as clinically indicated. As a part of the history for all of our patients, we should be routinely asking about environmental triggers, including smoking and vaping. You should ask these questions without the parent or guardian in the room in a non-judgmental manner using the terms that middle and high school students understand. So in this patient's case, the word that we needed to use was juuling. Uh, Trying to ask your patients about what's going on in the local schools allows you to learn a lot about what's going on in the schools and what to ask the other patients about. 
So with regards to the evaluation, given that this is not a typical asthma presentation, a patient like this, of course, warrants uh, more workup. As a pulmonologist, it's important to note the associations between vaping and asthma. Vaping is actually more popular among asthmatic teenagers, which may be because the teens think vaping is safer. I've had patients who are heavily vaping tell me that they would never smoke cigarettes because cigarettes are so dangerous. A volley occurs at higher than expected rates in asthmatics. Uh, the Florida Youth Tobacco Survey found that a third of 11 to 17 year olds with asthma had secondhand e-cigarette exposure, which was associated with increased risk for an exacerbation. And like this patient, we've had multiple patients with a remote history of asthma who are fine for years and then developed significant symptoms when they initiated vaping, some even requiring ICU level care. And in the literature, there are case reports of adolescents with asthma with a history of e-cigarette use who presented in status asthmaticus requiring VV ECMO. And because of these experiences, we've all learned to keep a closer eye on patients with asthma who are vaping. So in this case, even if asthma, you must think of the role of vaping making things worse. Because of that, I would get a blood, basic blood work, PFTs, and a CT, which was done in this case by the inpatient team. Joe's workup was notable for peripheral eosinophilia, pulmonary function testing revealing a reduced FEV1 with very significant bronchodilator response, and a CT scan showed scattered tree and bud opacification, mucus plugging, and ground glass opacification. And based on these results, he had a broad infectious and rheumatologic workup, which was all negative. Right. So, so as this workup that um, Alicia describes was underway, we continued to treat aggressively for his bronchodilator. Uh, bronchodilator responsive obstructive lung disease. He actually ended up requiring continuous albuterol and started on oral steroids with eventual improvement in his clinical status. And he was discharged home on a weaning steroid taper. But unfortunately, his symptoms of shortness, and breath, shortness of breath and wheeze returned about a week after he completed his steroid wean, and that required him to go back up on higher dose. Again, after that, a wean was attempted, but the same thing happened two weeks later where his subjective and objective symptoms essentially resolved on the oral steroids, but then returned almost immediately after coming off the wean with a worsening exam, worsening lung function. So Alicia, at this point, can you just walk us through your thought process and if anything was higher on your differential? Yeah, so given the presenting symptoms and finding on the CT with peripheral eosinophilia, we were concerned about the vaping and for the pulmonary eosinophilia conditions. So other than the vaping, there were no medications or toxin exposures that could have caused um, one of the pulmonary eosinophilia conditions. Uh, we thought about allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, but his IgE was very low on multiple checks. Eosinophilic granulomatous uh, with polyangitis was on the differential, but he had a negative ANCA. And there were no other features consistent with hypereosinophilia syndrome. As you mentioned, he had an extensive ID evaluation by that point, so it was less likely that we were missing infection. But we wanted uh, bronchoalveolar lavage samples, samples to make sure. We next proceeded with the bronchoscopy and also obtained transbronchial biopsies. 
His bronch showed mildly erythematous mucosa with a BAL showing 2% eosinophils, 4% neutrophils, and 72% macrophages. Infectious studies were extensive, again, and all negative. His transbronchial biopsies um, had scattered e interstitial eosinophils with degranulated forms. Okay, so based on this, what was his most likely diagnosis? And does he meet criteria for electronic cigarette and vaping associated lung injury or EVALI? At that point, he was diagnosed with eosinophilic pneumonitis. He had a more subacute presentation. Um, so this was considered chronic eosinophilic pneumonitis. I think perhaps there may have been a higher percentile of eosinophils on his BAL had he not been given so many courses of steroids. At that point, he was really steroid dependent, even with good adherence to inhaled corticosteroids, long-acting bronchodilators, and he was getting cushionoid, so we needed to find a steroid-sparing agent. We started him on mepiluzumab, the interleukin-5 antagonist, with a very slow wean of his steroids. And since that time, he's been doing extremely well. So with reference to Avali, uh, as you know, the criteria for Avali include vaping during the 90 days before symptom onset, with a pulmonary infiltrate on chest X-ray or chest CT in the absence of infection. Uh, in, in addition, no evidence in the medical record of an alternative plausible diagnosis. Because we now had the diagnosis of eosinophilic pneumonitis, it's not necessarily a volley, but we still reported him to the Department of Public Health because he required hospitalization, and we believe that his illness was vaping-related and triggered by the vaping. So uh, although eosinophilic pneumonitis has been described in the setting of vaping, that pathology uh, is, a, is not what's been described more frequently in the literature with the volley patients. The pathology described more frequently includes acute lung injury, uh, it, acute fibrinous pneumonitis, diffuse alveolar damage, organizing pneumonia. Uh, there also have been cases of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, lipoid pneumonia, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and giant cell interstitial pneumonitis that have been described um, in patients who have been vaping. Um, and to me, all of these pathologic findings are really just indicative of toxic chemical pneumonitis. And we're seeing so many different patterns of injury that are alarming in teenagers and young adults. And because vaping is so widely used by adolescents and young adults, it's still promoted as harmless. And the short and long-term negative pulmonary effects are largely unknown. It's our responsibility as pulmonologists to be looking for these issues and reporting them. So that was part of the uh, reason why we made sure that the Department of Public Health knew about it. And really, it's it took us decades to know what smoking could do to the lungs. And after brief use, we're seeing otherwise healthy teens coming in with severe injury. And I'm scared of what's to come for these kids uh, with decades of ongoing use and exposure, even the secondhand exposure. Uh, it's important now to realize that although the CDC is not actively updating their numbers since February, as this was sidetracked by COVID-19, we're still seeing lots of these patients. And as COVID-19 is on the differential, the, the patients get tested sometimes even more than once for COVID-19. 
even if they are COVID-19 positive, we still need to be asking about vaping as it could be both the lung injury uh, from the vaping and COVID-19. And I'm worried that the teens will have more severe outcomes with COVID-19 when vaping, as we've seen cases of more severe outcomes, um, both acute and subacutely with influenza and vaping. And there are already cases of severe outcomes of COVID-19 and vaping reported both in the medical literature and the lay press, but no systematic data has come out yet. So can you tell, uh, talk a little bit more about vaping and evaluating the COVID-19 epidemic? Are there any trends that have been reported or anything you've noticed? Yeah, the Journal of Adolescent Health recently published an article um, evaluating this topic. And they found um, the authors through an online survey of adolescents and young adults that COVID-19 symptoms, testing, and a positive test were all more common in adolescents and young adults who used e-cigarettes and both e-cigarettes and, ci and cigarettes. In fact, COVID-19 diagnosis was five times more likely among ever users of e-cigarettes and uh, seven times more likely among dual users. Uh, interestingly, it was also reported uh, in tobacco control in a longitudinal study of vaping retail markets uh, in six metropolitan areas with statewide COVID-19 shutdown orders from March to June of 2020 that many vape shops were non-compliant with state COVID-19 orders. There were increases in delivery options like takeout for your vaping products, discount pricing and promotions. And also noted um, were that vaping product users were equally like, likely to stockpile their vape products as they were to attempt to reduce or quit, smoke, uh, quit using e-cigarettes. Uh, this study uh, provides uh, data to back up what we've been hearing from our patients. Although some of the patients were reporting that they were better able to quit when they were out of school and not with their friends with as much exposure, um, there were others that were uh, more intensely using. Uh, a big concern is that if you're vaping, you're engaging in more risky behaviors in general and more likely to be exposed to COVID-19. Lester, I know there is um, some concern among the patients that you've seen about um, vaping being aerosol generating and in the COVID-19 epidemic, that's obviously a concern. Can you speak a little more about that? Well, I think the major concerns that we have in a primary care setting with this is spreading COVID because this is an aerosolized product and that it will go beyond the six feet um, of social distancing. And more and more data is coming out on this that seems to show that this could potentially travel beyond the six feet. So, you know, it's, it's a very stressful time for kids. They're looking for ways of reducing their anxiety and the marketing that goes into this is to claim to kids that this is gonna help reduce your anxiety. So uh, this is part of the challenge that we have as pediatricians in an era where kids are isolated and uh, are uh, just plain lonely as well. And this is even worse probably with the kids with mental health issues, including ADHD and anxiety. The, um, the, the National Youth Tobacco Survey this year 2020 said that there was 1.8 million fewer kids using vape, but still 3.6 million kids using. So in the past 30 days, 20% of the high school students and 5% of middle 
school students are using e-cigarettes on a 20 plus of the last 30 days. Most using flavored devices and pre-filled uh, cartridges. And this is an alarming increase in the use of the disposable types of e-cigarettes. Couple terms just really quickly to say is, kids who use uh, vape pens, like dab pens, use the term cart. And kids when they're using their jewel also use the term ripping the jewel. So that's kind of some of a, a lingo that I hear quite a bit from the kids. It's really scary to, to learn about this. It's really hard um, to deal with one public health issue, but when we're seeing both together, the management and treatment can be even more challenging. So and I'm, not, I'm not sure what this is a function of potentially either the rise in COVID or maybe some better control over the vaping epidemic, but we're certainly hearing less about vaping in Avali in the media. I was just wondering, Lester, if you could talk about if, if this is corresponding with fewer numbers of patients that we're seeing with vaping-related lung injury? Well, I think in a primary care setting, you know, we see many people, kids with uh, chronic respiratory problems. I, I, my sense is that the use, as this NYTS said, has gone up in the kids, even though there's a thought that the total number of people doing, uh, kids doing it have, have reduced. I mean, I'm seeing a, a fellow who for two years vaped with um, uh, THC and nicotine and had a nasal pharyngeal carcinoma, which is the um, average age of onset is 40. So this is a deep concern of what we're seeing happening now today uh, with, with kids. And also kids that have to be are steroid dependent as well, who have gained 25, 30 pounds adolescents that we've seen in our practice and quite distressed about their body image at that point. Principals have reported to me that there seems to be increased fighting in schools, and this may be a manifestation of withdrawals uh, versus nicotine toxicity. Parents at home have also told me that this has been an issue as well. Lester, we are noticing similar things in pulmonary clinic, and we continue to have high numbers of patients who are coming in, not uh, with a valley criteria, but um, but also patients that are coming in with baseline chronic respiratory symptoms like you described, and they're not sick enough to be hospitalized, but they have ab abnormal symptoms and uh, findings on exams, radiographic imaging, or pulmonary function testing. And uh, another thing um, that I've learned through uh, out our work uh, recently is that the patients are not always actually presenting with respiratory symptoms, but they have uh, behavioral uh, toxicity like you, you were just referencing and GI toxicity as well. And uh, thankfully, our GI providers are pretty keyed in about vaping, and we've actually got multiple referrals from GI there's patients with weight loss, uh, prior diagnosis of cyclical vomiting. And I'm not really sure if the GI symptoms are from being NICSIC, if they're having hyperemesis due to the cannabis, if it's part of withdrawals or something else. And it's interesting to me how frequent GI symptoms and liver function testing abnormalities are seen in, this in the setting of Avali itself. Yeah, so it sounds like this is really um, continuing to be a very scary problem, both both in the primary care setting and in, in pulmonary clinic. 
And what's really upsetting and alarming um, is how the e-cigarette companies really prey on adolescents. So companies like Juul, they claim to be targeted at current nicotine users, and they say that they're aiming to help them quit. But in reality, they've just spent so much money advertising directly to teenagers, and these teenagers are often nicotine naive. So now there is a whole new generation of nicotine addicted individuals. And there's been this massive increase in the number of adolescents who vape, which is really a huge tragedy with all that's been done to decrease the use of cigarettes in this population. And many adolescents don't even know what's in their e-cigarettes. So they're drawn to the flavors. They, they think they're just inhaling water vapor. And there was a survey done by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and it found that two-thirds of teens thought that only flavoring was in their e-cigarettes. And they don't realize that they're va vaping toxic chemicals in the e-liquid and that these devices have very high concentrations of nicotine, and they're really quickly becoming addicted. So Lester, could you talk more about the components of e-cigarettes, why they're so dangerous, and what has been done on a federal level to protect adolescent users? Well, with, with the components, in regard to components, you know, obviously the dab pen is referred to with the cartridges for THC, and then nicotine is usually the e-cigarette vape pen uh, that people use that come in various tanks, tank-based systems, or, or pod systems, or disposables. Um, and the solvents that are mixed in this are things such as vegetable oil, glycerol, and um, 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 propylene glycol, um, or the humectants. And then there are the flavors that are um, diacetyl-based flavors, acrolein, and things like this. Um, it seems like kids think that the, the lungs are the new stomach. Uh, all the more reason we should be teaching science at a younger age uh, to, so they understand the physiology of it. Um, and, you know, kids hear from, from the vape shops um, and vape dealers now that there are no shops really to speak of in, in Massachusetts, um, just mobile cars going around, um, that, you know, they hear that the FDA approved it, uh, propylene glycol for eating, and they think that's okay to, um, to inhale and doesn't, don't understand the physiology about that. In addition, there are issues with uh, the components of heavy metals. This can be a double whammy to infants because infants will inhale it as a secondhand inhalation. And then the oil film that ends up on surfaces that they crawl on, they can have um, ingestion that has the metals in it. And we might be facing something that looks more like uh, the lead problem that we've had before. And these things are, are unregulated. Um, there are a lot of imposters that come out of uh, China and um, uh, kids get them. They order them online um, as well. The federal regulations ha have been um, poorly written with loopholes. The most recent regulations state that, you know, pod-based systems at this point are banned. However, Juul is looking at coming back uh, again in what they call an artificial intelligence portion um, as well. And um, they end up, um, what they're getting are the pods that will, no pods, rather disposables that are allowed because only pod-based systems aren't allowed to be sold now, but disposables are allowed to be sold. So there's been this flood on the market of various products 
that are just disposable pens, uh, vape pens that look pretty much like a jewel, but not with a pot on it. The flavor bands um, um, that, that have gone on have exempted mint and menthol from them. And in our experience in Massachusetts uh, was that the number one flavor when all flavors were banned except mint and menthol, it didn't change. The use kept going, kept going up and mint was the number one flavor that kids continue to use. And um, so now what needs to happen soon is um, there's a bill that was passed in the House and hopefully the Senate will take it up that will have a national policy on banning all flavors, including menthol um, at this point. Again, kids are getting fake um, uh, devices from China, uh, very colorful looking devices. And also they're going across state lines uh, because there's no sta standard federal laws and there people from Massachusetts go over to New Hampshire, things like this. On top of this are the new on the internet have been showing anxiety pens, which kids think are harmless because it's got melatonin, B12, lavender, and we have no evidence that uh, these uh, substances are safe for the lungs. Yeah, so with so many unregulated options, it's really no surprise that we continue to see so many adolescents with vaping-related health issues. So Alicia, could you talk about the vaping program that you started at Boston Children's? Yeah, so in response to all of these patients that started piling up, we formed a pulmonary vaping clinic at Boston Children's Hospital and collaborated with multidisciplinary departments for patient care, including uh, the primary care, adolescent substance abuse, toxicology, and pathology. And we developed clinical and research protocols for further evaluations of these patients. Yeah, the, the vaping clinic is just really amazing and it's helped so many people. Um, and on top of all the clinical work you both have done, you both have also been instrumental in the changes that have been made to fight the vaping epidemic in Massachusetts. So Lester and Alicia, could you talk about some of the efforts in advocating for stricter laws and regulations in Massachusetts? Yes, um, my, the key issue that Massachusetts has done, it's one of only two states that has all uh, flavors banned and, um, and including, um, and also the Tobacco 21 legislation in place as a regulation. And um, uh, this was done over the last, um, since 2012. And um, I've been involved with, in Massachusetts, the boards of health determine the destiny of their town's health. And there are 352 uh, boards of health in Massachusetts. And uh, I visited over six and a half years, 200 of them. Um, and um, we were on the House and Senate floor, Dr. Jonathan Winnikoff and I, um, in Massachusetts when the bill passed 147 to 4, and uh, quite ecstatic. We then went into the flavor ban that had already gone on, and they had about 160 towns involved. The only problem they had with the flavor ban is they exempted menthol again. And we had already seen in the high schools the problem with this being the number one flavor when you talk to the, the, the kids at the high schools, which I do quite regularly because I see mostly adolescents now. Um, at the present time, the AAP is considering, um, and the AMA has already done this, a, an amicus brief to go along with the African American Tobacco uh, Control Leadership Council's complaint that the FDA has failed 
to ban menthol, which is really a youth predatory and a racist product. Um, there's a great movie called Black Lives, Black Lungs. If anybody has a chance to take a look at it, it's really touching about how they targeted the African-American population. As I mentioned before, the Polony Bill in New Jersey, hopefully we'll get into the Senate uh, with this. Parents have a great group called Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes. It's called PAVE. The website is parentsagainstvaping.org. Again, parentsagainstvaping.org. Tobacco-free masks and tobacco-free kids are, are highly helpful. Tobacco-free kids is especially on the national level, received a lot of money from uh, uh, Bloomberg and has been using this to help states uh, fund the 21 and the flavor bans. Um, tobacco 21 site also, the, the, a, the challenge would happen with Tobacco 21 in New Hampshire when it went national um, was the fact that state health inspectors, um, like in New Hampshire, for example, were told to only stay at 19, not go to 21. So about three weeks ago, finally, New Hampshire voted to have the state inspectors also who go into the convenience stores go to 21. It was a huge problem because kids would go over the border and pick up a bunch of uh, vape pens and sell them in Massachusetts at the time. So for me, this advocacy work has been so empowering. Um, as Lester just described, what's happened in Massachusetts, because that advocacy work is where the larger scale change um, has been made. And so because of this, our vaping program has also partnered with the Boston Children's Government Relations and marketing teams, the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, um, and community advocates in primary care like Lester and others who have already been doing so much public health work to augment uh, our advocacy efforts um, and become more involved um, at Boston Children's. And, and uh, for, for me, uh, this all really accelerated in September of 2019 when a bunch of us who were working with patients that were harmed by vaping, vaping products were called in to meet with Governor Baker and then subsequently uh, to the Massachusetts Health Council. And uh, it, it was amazing because after hearing our testimony, all vaping products were banned in the state of Massachusetts due to the volley concerns. And, you know, of course, the state of Mass was later sued by the vaping industry. And I testified in that court case um, for Attorney uh, General Healy as well, uh, which resulted in a, sh a shortening of the duration of the ban. But then um, shortly thereafter, um, as Lester discussed, the Massachusetts House and Senate approved the mass flavoring ban, which amazingly includes uh, all flavored uh, tobacco products, including mint menthol, um, it, because of uh, the work of uh, Lester and uh, many others. Um, and we're very uh, lucky to live in the state of Massachusetts, where uh, our uh, leadership is very open um, to ma making changes uh, that will help uh, youth and young adults uh, with, with this uh, epidemic. And uh, until the COVID-19 pandemic started and halted our progress, uh, we had in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Special Legislative 
uh, commission on vapes, jewels, and other e-cigarettes with um, representatives from public health, uh, legislation members, drug-free communities, American Cancer Society, Action Network, law enforcement, and schools. There's actually members from the vaping um, pro product community. And I'm really looking forward to resuming our work here in Massachusetts to, to continue to um, make changes. You both have really done such amazing and inspiring work. Lester, what can we do as physicians to help bring an end to the vaping epidemic? Talk to kids, talk to parents, ask. Again, with the parents out of the room, ask about have they been offered, have they ever used, do they have friends using um, these products. Have materials, have a vape pen, couple vape pens uh, to show. And I always show the parents what these look like because um, there's a movie out in Massachusetts called Hidden in Plain Sight. So parents don't even recognize these devices. And um, this way, when they've seen them, it helps them. In addition, when advocating for this, for bans and flavor changes, it's very incriminating to show the actual device that you're trying to get regulated. Not just talk about it, but let, them, let people hold it, smell it, feel it, how heavy it is, and realize how deceptive uh, the design is to hide from parents. And I think that's a very vital, important thing that you need to keep in mind when talking with them. Choose whether you wanna work on the local, county, state, and or federal level, and make your focus to make changes. For example, Massachusetts Tobacco-Free Mass, we're gonna work with them, is now planning to work hard on developing Massachusetts being the first state to be tobacco-free in the country. Um, and we're going to start as part of that movement. Talk to schools. I've been to about between 70 and 100 schools now, and it's so much fun talking to the kids and the parents as well. And I bring the devices with me, and I pass them out, but I always make sure at the end after kids look, look at them, oftentimes I don't necessarily hand them to them because um, I've lost a few devices that way. Mm -hmm. So I think I contributed to something that I didn't intend to. But we have so much power in our communities. We have a voice that they respect. And if you speak loudly and clearly and be assertive, persist with this, never ever be afraid. And this helped when uh, Maura Healy, our Massachusetts Attorney General that Alicia just talked about, was the first AG to subpoena Jewel for its marketing strategy records. And in the 50,000 pages that they had, there were absolutely nothing about marketing to adults for cessation. It was all marketing to youth to use. And a little FYI, she discovered that Juul put its ad on a, a, a web page of uh, advertising on Nick Jr. Nick Jr. This is insane, this is diabolical, and this is terrible. And the strategy will continue despite them saying they're trying to get an FDA approved for safer cessation with no evidence that it works, that, uh, that it's any better than cigarettes. They are still going to continue to addict kids. One thing just to say is a pod in Juul 
has the nicotine level three and a half times greater than a pod in Britain. This intent was to addict, period. And what I would say, again, is what our great senator said, Elizabeth Warren, persist. Well, thank you both so much for such an interesting and informative discussion and for all the work that you've already done and no doubt will continue to do to fight the, the vaping epidemic in our adolescent population. So we would all like to thank our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the Lung Science Podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. And if you would like to listen to more episodes of the podcast, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.